my name is Anna Sawal, and I'm coming to you from ATS 2023 in Washington, D.C. I am so lucky to have with me today clinician extraordinaire, Dr. Patricia Critic. Dr. Critic has long been recognized as a trailblazer for medical education within the ATS community, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with her regarding the importance of storytelling in medical education. Good morning, Dr. Critic. Good morning. Good to see you now. Good to see you too. So, Please tell us who exactly is Patricia Critic. Wow, that's a that's a tough one. I think that um, so first of all, I'm Trish, and and my name is Patricia, but I think most people know me as Trish Critic. Um, and as you said, I think uh, I'm a clinician. I'm a critical care doc mostly, not really much of a pulmonologist anymore. And the thing that's been most defining about me in my career has been being a medical educator. So I've been a medical educator since I started as a pulmonary and critical care doc. Um, and really done that in a lot of different spaces. And then I think in the last kind of few chapters of my life, I've been a leader and kind of leading in different spaces. And so I've had three kind of different chapters of my life so far as a, as a pulmonary critical care doc. The first is really rooted in education as a program director and a course director in the medical school back in Boston. And then a second chapter as a clinical leader, as a medical director of critical care at the University of Washington. And then the last, not last, hopefully ever, but the current chapter is as a vice dean in the School of uh, Medicine at the University of Washington. So um, I'd say, you know, throughout, I'm a pulmonary critical care doc. And then throughout, I'm an educator. And then I've done a bunch of other stuff that has been kind of defining at different phases of my career. So that's kind of who I am uh, at work. And then out of work, I'm somebody who likes to be outside, to run, to row, to explore the Pacific Northwest and other parts of the world. So, and loving, I love to cook. So like, there's lots of other parts of me that aren't about why we're here in ATS, but for here, I'd say I'm a, I'm a clinician educator and a medical educator. So basically you do it all. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I like to do a lot of different things. And that's fun. I, I think regardless, we're very inspiring. Um, I remember in your session, you talked about you were in Harvard and there were a lot of scientists around you. And then you just, decided education was your path. So what was it about medical education that appealed to you so early on in your career? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, you're right. It was definitely not kind of what was the mold of what we were supposed to do. Because um, I grew up in a place where I kind of the path to success was being an investigator. And actually, I think it goes back before, like even going to medical school. I was, uh, I was a rowing coach before I went to medical school between undergrad and um, medical school and I loved coaching and and I think coaching is a lot of teaching um and I like taught Princeton Review and I did all these things where I got to teach and I think starting in medical school all the way through residency when I was a chief resident when I was a fellow kept coming back to the part where the thing that brought me the most joy was teaching whether that was teaching clinically or teaching in a classroom I liked all of it and probably the thing I thought that was most exciting about it was uh, number one, I think making complex concepts digestible and understandable is incredibly exciting. And the second thing that really captures me, I think, and maybe I figure this out later, I'm not sure, is it's reinvigorating for your passion about what you do to be with people who are learning to do it. So nothing's more exciting than a first year medical student. They're super excited about becoming a doctor and you're like, oh yeah, I remember why it's so exciting to do this. And so I think it reinvigorates me every time I work with partners. So I think it's kind of in my genes. My dad's a PhD educator. My mom's a, 
uh, PhD nurse educator. And it's been something I've done all through my life. And when I finally kind of got to the place where I had to decide, I was like, but this is the thing that brings me joy and, and that I'm pretty good at. So I kind of came back. That is, that is great to hear because I think a lot of times we go into medicine and we forget what, what made us interested in medicine. And it's always, there's always one, that one mentor, that one teacher that really just inspired that spark in us. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, the next question that I have then going off of that is what makes, what do you think makes someone a good educator? Hmm, that's a good question. And I think some of the thing we talk about is like educator with a capital E or educator with a lower Casey. And so there's first just the teaching and like what makes a good teacher. And I would say, honestly, I think what makes a good teacher is people who spend some time thinking about their teaching. Like for some reason, we think that because we're smart physicians, we all know how to teach inherently. And, and there are some, I think there are great teachers who are born, but most good teachers are made. So I think being a good teacher is people who spend time thinking about what they're teaching, like planning what they're doing and evaluating how they were taught, getting feedback on their teaching and really kind of refining skill set, just like we refine any other skill set. And so I think that's part of it. I think the other big part of it is like caring about your learners and like wanting to understand what they need and how to how to kind of meet them there and make the, the teaching you're doing about them and not necessarily about you. So I think it's a skill set. I think we need to teach the skill set. I think the really good teachers invest in building that skill set. Capital E educator, um, which is something I think we've talked about uh, a lot in the last you know decade or two in, in pulmonary care medicines. I think those are people who are making careers focused on being a leader in education or doing research in education or you know doing big design of curriculum implementing them and I think that's like a whole other skill set that's different from being a great teacher and I think the people who are good at that are the people who invest in it and, and you know develop new knowledge new skills collaborate across sites step into the leadership roles um, innovate in the same way that like the people who are great scientists are the people who are doing those same things. So I would say, you know, as I think about the people in the American Grass Society, there's a ton of great teachers here. And I think that's one group. And then there's a growing body of people who are kind of educators with a capital E. And I think both are really important and they're complementary but different skill sets. So speaking of innovation, um, we're at ATS, we're surrounded by innovation and it's exciting to see where do you hope medical education starts to go from here? Hmm. Good question. I think that um, a lot of what we've done in the last several years is evolve into doing something that I mentioned a second ago, which is being learner-centered or partnering with our learners more. And I think kind of traditional medical education, whether it's teaching medical students or residents or fellows was about like the teacher and not the learner. And I think we're evolving to be more learner-centered, which you know, that doesn't mean that everything we did 20 or 30 or 40 years ago is bad. I don't think that. You, know, you maybe heard me say, I still like to lecture and I think lectures become a bad word. And so I, I think there's value in, in what we've done for a long time, but I think evolving to kind of understand who we're working with and what will be most effective. I think that's one space that will be evolving. I think the other thing that is an evolutionist, there's so much more knowledge than even when I was a medical student or a resident or a fellow, that a lot of what we are teaching people to do is how to manage that knowledge as opposed to just 
memorize all that knowledge. And so that's a different skill set as well. Um, and so I think that those are two big things. And then I think the third one that you hear people talk about is like, how do we how do we have graduated learning that's paced for the learner as opposed to you spend this much time doing X, you spend this much time doing Y, you spend this much time doing Z and uh, acknowledge that people are gonna gain skills at different paces and that we need to kind of match that as opposed to be prescriptive. So I think there's a lot of different things that will continue to evolve. And what's inspiring is there's like a bunch of people in this place and and here in DC while we're at this meeting, but it was members of the American Thrive Society who are folks who are testing out those new things and leading in those spaces, which is great. I think uh, speaking of everything that you're talking about, I think COVID really changed how we impart knowledge and how we deliver knowledge. Mm -hmm. It made us pivot in our thought process of how a learner best is exposed to education. Um, so hearing all your thoughts, I think are exactly what I've seen too while being here. Um, going back to your session, you were speaking about the different chapters in your career. You mentioned a little bit about it today. How did you know it was time for the next chapter? Hmm. Well, to be fully honest, I don't, for the first one, I didn't know, right? In the first, uh, the second chapter, you know, from chapter one to chapter two was when I moved from Boston to, to Seattle. And I wasn't actually looking for a next chapter and an opportunity presented itself. And I think what was key in that moment was being open to an opportunity that wasn't what I had scripted or planned for and just being willing to, to explore that. And then in the end, that seemed like a really good next chapter. So I think that that transition was more about um, having a plan, but being open to that plan, not being exactly what I ended up doing. And it was great to have done that. Uh, as we, as I've commented before, you know, after that's your history, it's easy to see like, oh, that was exactly the right history. So who knows if that was the best thing, but that seemed to work out great. Um, when I went, I spent that eight years being, um, a medical director of critical care. And that time I was actually starting to think about the next chapter. And I think the things that helped me think that maybe it's time is, I think one, for me, the opportunity to create and do new things is super exciting. And <clears throat> once you get to a point where you feel like now I'm starting to do some of those things again, or I feel like I, you know, made these big changes or put in place these you know, structures or whatever it is that you're doing, you made the scientific discovery that you were hoping to get to. That gave me pause to say, okay, I could keep doing this and still find joy and like satisfaction, but the newness of it, the innovation part of it, the kind of um, generative part of it was not the same. And so that was when I started saying, I think I want to think about a next chapter. And I think that happens for people at all different phases of their career. I do kind of believe that, um, Every five, seven years, it's good to have change. And I often quote this friend of mine whose friend, his mom said, every plant needs to be repotted every seven years. And I kind of, that resonates with me. And so I think, you know, for me, it was coming up to that point where I was like, oh, I've done this and I could keep doing it. It'd be fun, but I'm ready for a new set of challenges. Mm -hmm. And that made me start. So the second time, second transition, I started looking for things. And again, I think probably my advice would be if you get a little inkling of that, start looking, not because you're going to leave right away or change right away or do something different right away, but there's some real benefit in, in kind of 
pausing to, to test out different things, to explore different things and not feel like I have to get out of this job right now. Because then I think you're going to take something that isn't really the best thing for you. So if you kind of are like, maybe I'm going to move towards the next chapter, that's the time to start talking to people, brainstorming, pursuing you know ideas on what could be that next chapter for you so that you can move into a next chapter happily leaving the one that you're in as opposed to escaping the one that you're in which i think is doesn't feel as good probably so a lot of times people are fearful of change i mm. think we all have that in our lives at some point what advice do you have for those looking for ways to move to another chapter but just haven't taken that step yet yeah that's a, a really good question i was just out for a walk this morning at ats one of my favorite things is like just catching up with friends and we were having that exact conversation as a friend was contemplating a move to another city and I think the older you get, sometimes the more intimidating it is to go try to set up a new community or, or whatever. But you, what you asked is about change and change could be, you know, not moving to a new city it could just be a different change in your job. Um, so my first piece of advice is the advice that I was given, which is if you make a change at some point in time, you're gonna be regretful of that. And that's normal. Like someday you'll say, <clears throat> wow, I had this great job and why did I leave it? Or I had this great community in the city and why did I leave it? Or whatever that is in that early phase of change, it's normal to be like, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake? And I say that because that's definitely happened to me and everyone I know who's made a big change has had that kind of regretful moment. And those are transient moments and you get through them and it's still really great on the other side. So that's my first thing I would say for people to normalize that because I think it is really, really normal to feel that at some point in time. Um, I think the other part of it is, um, you know, saying it's hard and that there's there's going to be challenges in doing that. And it's so affirming of, of you to step into that space and get through it that I think you end up stronger, you end up, you know, more courageous, you end up in a better place having gone through that change, but it can be hard. And then the last thing I'd say is, it's really exciting to do something different. It, it, you start to use different parts of your brain, you start to do, um, create new relationships, develop new communities. And that, I think, makes it fun to come to work every day again. Not every day, right? Like there's bumps in the road, but I think if you're not in a place where you're like excited to come to work every day, the, the reason to think about change is because that's what we should want. And so I think that, that there's this hopeful part of change too. And so I think it's acknowledging that there's challenges and that's normal and, and that it can be bumpy along the way and that's normal. And that in the end, it kind of makes you hopefully happier in what you're doing and, you know, resonates with, oh, I can do this. That, that's very affirming. So those are the things I would suggest. There is a quote, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it because I feel everything that you said is just, it just goes right back to it. It's that um, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And uh, I think everything that you were speaking of just goes towards that is we have to challenge ourselves to become the best version of ourselves. Um, so I applaud you for everything that you've done. Um, <clears throat> speaking of change though, a lot of times change has pros and cons. So how have you dealt with obstacles that you face as you move through each chapter of your career? Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that because I think that's exactly right. Like no change is like all good. And 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 I think it's easy sometimes to, after you've moved through it, remember all the good and forget the bad. And so it is important to say that both are true. Um, so there's loss, right? Like change 
we have a, you know, a saying that all changes to be resisted. Like people don't want to change a lot of the time. And a lot of times um, that's because there's a loss of something, right? And so, for example, um, when I went from my first phase of my career, where I was really all in as an educator, one of the things I worried the most about was losing my identity as an educator because I was taking a clinical leadership role. And um, I had to really focus on how I would stay being true to kind of who I was. But to be honest, like I lost some part of that identity in, in transitioning to being an educator. And when I was thinking about that third chapter, I really wanted to get back to being an educator. And I had this really concerning time when I was like, maybe because I've switched, I, I can't really go back to that. And I applied for a job, I think, to be like the associate dean for admissions. And I didn't even get an interview for the job. And and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't get an interview. First of all, I'm like, you know, moderately self-confident. And I would be like, oh, how could I not even make it to the interview phase? And, and I reached out and I said, you know, I'd love to meet and talk about why I didn't get an interview. And this person who was running the search said, well, you haven't been doing this stuff. And it didn't seem like you were really a medical student educator focused person. And it was super sobering because I was like, oh my God, have I closed a bunch of doors by taking this other path? And in the end, the answer was no. But in that moment, it definitely felt like yes. And so those are those are some of the challenges and some of the losses, right? I think that that has been hard. Um, I think the other challenges are, you know, losing relationships and not because there's like conflict or something like that, but you, when you close one chapter and open another chapter, by definition, you're working with different people and you lose some relationships and that's hard. And, and I think you miss that. I will say what has been true in my life is the, the deepest friendships and the deepest relationships, whether they're through work or school or whatever, they stay as a through thread. But there's a lot of other ones that you just lose. Like there's people that I used to see all the time and now I don't see all the time. And so I think, um, those would be some of the challenges. And I think the last one, which I think relates to the like, oh my God, have I made a gigantic mistake is sometimes it's really hard and sometimes you don't do it right. And you have to kind of sit with that and learn from it. And there's been many, many, many things in the various parts of my career where I've been like, boy, I would do that differently. And, and actually that's okay. You learn from it. If you keep doing the same thing over and over again, that's not okay. But we all make mistakes and we have to learn from it. So I've had many of those along the way. That, that's part of like getting older and wiser. Uh, I, I think that a lot of the listeners that are going to be hearing this podcast will range from those, as you described, early career, mid-career, late career. We've talked a lot about, I think, for the mid to late career folks. Mm -hmm speaking towards the early career people, the ones that are looking for opportunities to get involved in ATS, looking for ways to get involved in medical education. What is your advice on how they should hear their efforts? Yeah, so I, I think my perspective on this has evolved over time. And I think earlier in my career, we talked a lot about when to say no to things. And, and I do think it's a skill that you have to get because you could be pulled in 63 different directions. Um, but my honest advice is, to say yes to some things. And that means that um, if an opportunity presents itself, particularly if you're like, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this opportunity, sometimes the right answer is yes. And, and that means that like, if you wait to be fully prepared for whatever opportunity is presenting you, you're gonna miss opportunities. So 
I think if somebody says to you, hey, you could record a podcast at ATS, even if you've never recorded a podcast before, you should say yes. And you should do those things. Or if someone says, would you co lead a poster discussion session, even though you're like, I'm not sure I know what a poster discussion session is. Number one, you can Google it or talk to some people about what it is. But those are the things to step into. Um, I think particularly in a, in a national society as big as this, there's not a ton of opportunities. So I mean, there's lots and lots of opportunities, but if you get offered something, I think generally I would say yes and, and, and try it out. Now you can't say yes to 10 things. You can say yes to one, maybe two things. But if you get those opportunities, I would, I would step into them. And, and saying yes to something to test it out doesn't mean you're committing to it for forever. So if you say yes and you're like, oh my gosh, this is not what I thought it was going to be or I didn't didn't expect it, then you can transition out of it. I think the other thing, a piece of advice I give is if you're going to say no, which is also totally fine because there are only so many hours in the day and everyone, you know, in your early career, you're trying to launch a career. And so you don't want to be pulled in too many different directions. I, I like to say no, not yet or no, not now. But I'd love to think about that in the future so that you kind of keep doors open. So I think take advantage of the opportunities. Um, meet people, uh, which people use the word network. I like this. I'm, I'm changing that. I say like make friends, meet people while you're here. Some of like my really good life friends I've met through ATS. And then um, try to find those smaller spaces within the big organization where you can start to kind of dig in. So that could be a committee, it could be an assembly, it could be uh, a section, it could be um, a, co uh, a cohort of colleagues who come together at ETS. I don't, they're different for everybody, but finding the microcosms, I think that's the other strategy I would encourage. I, I love the idea of viewing it as meeting people instead of networking. My, uh, one of my mentors, um, Dr. Diana Kelm, she always just says that this is my, these are my people, this is my tribe where you grow and you inspire each other. And I think that's a very important thing to have in any relationship that you have in life. Yeah. Um, to circle back before we wrap this up, I just wanted to ask, why did you use storytelling as a way of delivering your message? Well, the honest answer is they asked me to do it that way. So. <laughs> but I actually am a big uh, fan of storytelling. I'll tell you where it comes from. Um, when I was a medical director of critical care, when we would do initiatives and, and try to change how we deliver care, I believe that you have to win both hearts and minds in order to develop partnerships to, to make change. And one of the things that we did almost every time we did that was tell stories, because that's, I think, how you win hearts. And that could be us telling stories or more commonly patients or family members telling their stories, whatever that was. You're leading an initiative on delirium prevention and having a patient talk about what it was like to be delirious or you're working on end of life care and you have a family member come in and talk about what that process was like for them. Um, you know, we love data. <laughs> data wins minds, but stories win hearts. And so I think storytelling is part of what I've done for a long time. And now that I am a leader in the school, I use storytelling again when I have initiatives. So I launched a peer support program for the whole organization. And the way we launched it is I told a story about when I would have liked to have had a peer supporter. And again, I think that that's how you kind of capture the hearts of people. And, and I think it's really a rich thing. Now, stories are an end of one. They're only one perspective, but it is kind of a way to, to grab people and, and bring them in. I think the other part of it is um, 
it's easy to see lots of people in this place as these like big leaders or famous people and you've seen the their paper in the New England Journal of Medicine or you've seen them on the big stage and actually we're all people <laughs> and I think that was one of the realizations I had after a few years of being at ATS is like oh those big fancy famous people were just people wandering around at the conference and I think storytelling also humanizes people and I think what is great about this organization is getting to know a lot of people. And so I think storytelling is entry into to that as well. And hopefully in telling my story that, you know, normalize that it's hard, there's challenges, you mess up, it's, you know, not linear. And and hopefully that helps other people say like, oh, that, that person who looks like they got it together also had all these things that were challenging along the way. And, and hopefully that's a, a positive message. I can just tell you this much as someone who views yourself as being in the first couple of pages of my of my first chapter, you just talking to you has made me so excited about my next chapter already. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today to just continue to educate in every moment. Um, <laughs> um, are there any other thoughts that you want to share before we end this session? Um, well, first of all, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And it's a, this is exactly the kind of thing that's so great at ATS is that I now know you as a person from doing this, which is great. And um, it's a privilege to be a part of this uh, podcast, but also just to be a part of this organization and get to know folks early in their career, mid-career, late career, all of the people that we get to meet. So thank you for the opportunity to talk today. And I guess what I would say to the listeners is, if they want to talk more about the next phase of their career, I'm always happy to have someone reach out. So email me and I'm happy to chat with them as well. It, it's really been fun to talk and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, everyone. This will be Nana Sewell with Dr. Trish Critic uh, <laughs> signing off from ATS 2023 from Washington, DC. Thank you. Bye.